You are listening to Help for HD Live, the first podcast created for families living with Huntington's and juvenile Huntington's disease. Don't forget to find us on iTunes, Blog Talk, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. You can also search over 500 archived episodes and other projects at helpforhd.org. To watch us in person, find Help for HD TV on YouTube and subscribe and ring the bell for notifications on new content. Help for HD Live is going on air in 5, 4, 3, 2, This show is made possible because of a grant from Teva Pharmaceuticals and the Griffin Foundation. I'm your host, Lauren Holder, and today our guests are Dr. David Reynolds and Dr. Carolyn Ben of Locust 23. Uh, Carolyn obtained a first-class honors degree in neuroscience at the University of Sussex, followed by a PhD in molecular neurogenetics at King's College London, where she investigated the contribution of um, subcellular localization to Huntington's. Uh, pathogenesis in Professor Bill Gil Bates. Lab, sorry, she moved to Massachusetts General Hospital, um, Harvard Medical School for mechanisms of transcript dysregulation in HD, and returned to the UK and King's College London for a position focused on the genetic and pharmacological modulation of HDACHD. Um, and then we have. Dr. Reynolds. He's the CEO of Locust 23 Therapeutics, which was created by the Dementia Discovery Fund in 2019. Locust 23 is targeting DNA damage repair processes, which are a driving force in the pathophysiology and triple repeat diseases like Huntington's. Uh, David joined the DDF after three years as the Chief Scientific Officer of Alzheimer's Research UK, Europe's largest dementia research charity, investing in both academic research and translational drug discovery. Uh, he previously worked in the pharmaceutical industry for 18 years at Merck, uh, Sharp, and Dome, Lundbeck, and Pfizer, where he was Cambridge Neuroscience and Pain Research Site Head. He's held a variety of R&D leadership roles with responsibilities ranging from exploratory biology through drug discovery, early clinical development, and business development in multiple disease areas, but with a focus on neuroscience and pain. He holds a PhD on animal models of Huntington's from the University of Cambridge, UK. He's also a visiting professor at the Institute of Neurology, University College London. Guys, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so excited to have you on, and we're on Zoom today. Um, So this is recorded, and uh, we have video along with our audio. So thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having us and for giving us a, a, a big intro. So hopefully we can live up to that, that intro. <laughs> so I ask every professional that comes on the podcast one specific question, and that is why Huntington's disease? So shall I start? Um, so as you mentioned at the beginning, I did my PhD on Huntington's disease over 20 years ago now. And I remember when I finished my undergraduate um, science degree, I wanted to do a PhD that was much more linked to a disease rather than kind of blue sky biology. And the PhD I found was on Huntington's disease and I learned a huge amount about the disease. And that was at the time in the mid 90s when the Huntington gene had just been identified 
And at that time, I thought it'd be quite soon until we, you know, we had effective therapies to treat Huntington's disease. Now, I went off to the pharmaceutical industry. I worked for Merck and I worked for Pfizer for nearly 20 years. And I, I learned a lot about how to do drug discovery. But during that time, we were always working on, in inverted commas, the bigger diseases, like or schizophrenia pressure, the ones that pharma companies thought were the, the most attractive from a commercial point of view. And I was very disappointed to see that whilst there was some uh, drug research going on in Huntington's, not nearly as much an, an emphasis I thought, thought there really should be. Now, what I was very pleased to see over the last few years is that's really, really changed. And I think that's down to the science and understanding the disease a lot more. Now, after doing 20 years in, um, in industry, I actually worked for a research charity focused on Alzheimer's disease and other forms of brain degenerative diseases, which included Huntington's, but that wasn't its core focus. But what I really learned in those three years at Alzheimer's Research UK just how important the patients are and what patients need. Because to be honest, I'd always approach this as a scientist. You know, this is a scientific problem that actually working for a charity, coming into contact with patients, their family members, their carers, it made me appreciate much more the, the human side of these diseases and how important this is to listen to the patients of what really bothers them. Because what bothers them and what, what impacts on their quality of life is not necessarily what I think it is when I read a scientific paper. And so after three years at Alzheimer's, three Research UK, and they were one of the partners of something called the Dementia Discovery Fund. Um, I had the chance to start a, a company from scratch focused solely on HD um, and then using some of this new biology with uh, investment from the Dementia Discovery Fund to really try and make a difference. So for me, it's kind of coming full circle over the last 20 years of, of my degree from having studied Huntington's 20 years ago, learned how to do drug discovery really understood I think a lot more about patients but there's loads that I don't know and now I have the chance to put all that together and hopefully make a really big difference in HD. That's awesome and we're so excited um, to have you in the community and, and doing that so thank you. Okay I guess it's my turn now. Yes. So um, hi everyone I'm Caroline and um, I'm really pleased to be here talking with you all today because I have a real um, passion and drive for HD research and drug discovery. So why HD? There are two reasons. One is scientific and professional and the other is personal. So the scientific slash professional reason, I decided to do my PhD on Huntington's research with Jill Bates who made the first transgenic mouse model of Huntington's. And I joined her lab four months after she made that transgenic mouse model. Uh, the reason I wanted to do HD, so my grandfather died of Alzheimer's. Uh, my dad had Alzheimer's as well. And as a scientist, um, I was aware of what an enormous need there is for neurodegenerative disease research and trying to understand what's going on, because if you don't understand what's going on, it's then very difficult to fix it. And I deliberately chose Huntington because I thought, you know, as a monogenic disorder with um, a clear mutation and um, a track that results from that mutation, I thought this is a real opportunity. So I chose to go and work with 
still where my main day number of transgenic mass model to try and understand what was going on in the disease. And I, um, I came up with a number of really exciting observations. And so I decided to ignore all of the advice that um, everyone gave me, you know, go off and do something else, learn about different ways of doing research and say, no, 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 this is important. I've got to follow this track. But I wanted to carry on working on Huntington disease in academia and chose to work with Tun Ho Cha, who is an MD, PhD, mm-hmm. um, and he was at the time an attending at Mass General with Anne Young. And um, one of my favorite people. Oh, I love Tun Ho. He's awesome. He's still one of my favorite people. Yes, that's um, wonderful. Yeah, she's great, isn't he? So um, it was a brilliant time to be working with him. You know, he's uh, off the chart smart, he's so incredible. And to be able to use uh, the clinical insight as well as the research insight to drive the direction of research, I think was valuable. And on the basis of that, I thought that I'd made some uh, observations in Chinhoe's lab and I thought, okay, now this is my opportunity to really start applying this. I've got to go and learn how to do drug discovery so that I can turn some of those academic observations into something tangible for patients. I spent the last 11 years learning how to do drug discovery, mostly at Pfizer, but then also at um, Aztec Pharmaceuticals, which is a company that uses structure-guided drug discovery. And um, the opportunity then came to, uh, with David and some others, to combine those two passions for Huntington research and drug discovery. Because in industry, I was um, pretty much perpetuating in a soapbox, saying to people, you've got to be working on Huntington. These are all the reasons you've got to be working on it. It's, um, it's a disease that we are really, really starting to understand very well. Thank you the effort of so many incredible scientists in clinician, we understand what's going on at the molecular level, we understand what that means to the clinical uh, sequence of events, this is where it should be at. And so having the opportunity to start up a company with David and others to really do something about that was um, is the reason why I'm here. And uh, I'm using some of that scientific uh, knowledge to, um, with David and others, to go after the fundamental uh, problem in Huntington disease, which is OCAG repeat, that that's what we're going after. That's scientific, personal. Um, one of the reasons why I was aware of Huntington's in the first place was that my dad diagnosed a family in the village where we lived um, with Huntington's. I knew the kids in this family. I um, I saw the family at church, I would see them uh, shopping at the grocery store, and so I saw from within the community the impact that that had. And then doing my PhD, one of my um, PhD colleagues in Joe's lab came from an HD family, and she's now one of my best friends. She was a, a bridesmaid at my wedding, she's godmother to one of my daughters. Um, I know her family well. Um, I unfortunately went to her mum's funeral last year. I'm watching her brother develop symptoms. And um, that's one of the reasons why it's personal, but Donna did so much more than that. She arranged for all, everybody in the base lab to go to the Huntington Disease Association meeting, which in the UK is like the HDSA. It's um, 
um, organisation for patients and she arranged for us to go there and talk with everybody, meet people, so that we could learn about the human side of the disease that we were studying in the lab. Because in the lab, you've just got lots of tubes. It becomes quite abstract. You know you're working on a disease, but it's not until you um, start talking to people that you really um, see more of a totality of the disease. Right. And you so don't have you don't have a face with it in a lab. You have you have test tubes or mouse models. Yeah, we have lots of uh, small plastic tubes. We move little bits of liquid from one tube to another. Um, it's quite removed from the, um, the the reality, if you will. And so this is something that I chose to take with me to Boston. That I would go to clinic with Chinho. I went to the HDS meetings. I went to volunteer with Cooperthon to help pick up all of the basketballs that were going everywhere. Um, and so it's personal. I met so many incredible people, and I want to do something about that. Well, and you know that really just touches my heart because we need people who are we need researchers like you who are so passionate about it but also they have that personal connection because you're going to fight even harder for us you know and um so this is what's so exciting about your company um that you guys are so on fire for huntington's and so passionate about huntington's and um i'm very excited about what you guys are doing and um so we're going to start with david and i'm going to have you tell us a little bit about Locus 23. So Locus 23 Therapeutics came into existence um, on the 1st of April 2019 and that was basically when we got the first um, bit of funding from the Dementia Discovery Fund. So this is a venture capital fund but the thing that's unusual about it is it only focuses on dementia. Now a lot of that's on Alzheimer's disease and vascular dementia and so on but what the fund wanted to do was look at all the types of neurodegenerative disease because actually at the fundamental biology level quite a lot of themes cross cut from Huntington, Parkinson's, to Alzheimer's and so on. Right. So as a portfolio they wanted to invest in all these different areas and um, a, a key piece of biology from um, genetic studies in Huntington's uh, patients, so these are the GWAS studies, the genome-wide association studies, had pointed to DNA damage repair mechanisms being really important for what happens to those uh, CAG repeats that are expanded in Huntington's disease, and really driving the fundamentals. And we can come back to that in, in a minute. But that was the kind of core concept, so a really good idea of how do you treat fundamental driving disease-causing pathology in the disease. And importantly, tractability. So it's one thing to know something that causes a disease. It's another thing to have a way to try and treat it. And for many years, that's been the, the enigmatic thing about hunting tin. We knew what the gene was and what the protein product was, but what did you do about it in terms of the therapy? Now, thankfully, that is changing, and there's the Roche Ionis phase three study ongoing and various other things. But what we're looking at is, I guess, one step upstream of that, what can drive the Huntington protein and the, the, the transcription of that to be toxic. So the Dementia Discovery Fund invested in Locus 
And the idea is that we are going to try and tackle what goes wrong in the DNA damage repair system. And importantly, we're going to do that with small molecules. So these are your classic uh, chemistry-made molecules like you have with uh, an aspirin or uh, you know, other drugs that you can take as a tablet. Because one of the things that both Caroline and I appreciated when we started, but have a much better appreciation having spoken to patients, been to the HDSA meeting and so on, that it's all very well having, well, first of all, we absolutely want therapies that work, right? And, you know, we really want something that works. But what's also important is that it is convenient and accessible to patients. So the, the, what's called the new modalities in the kind of drug world, so these uh, antisense oligos that you inject through a spinal tap, or the gene therapies where you have to have surgery and it's injected directly into your brain. Scientifically, they are wonderful. And if they work in patients, that is great. But not everybody wants to go and have their brain, you know, surgery on their brain. And not everybody can get to a clinic that can do a spinal tap. If you live, you know, out in the, the, the countryside, a long way from a specialist clinic, going there every two months is, is not really ideal, right? Well, and the only thing and available, spinal taps really are for, for symptomatic, you know, Huntington's patients are going to be extremely difficult so you're right accessibility um yeah there's always complications with with certain things like that if you can go to your pharmacist and get your your bottle of pills and you take one every morning with your breakfast and that is your therapy then that will have so many advantages for patients all over the world right um so that's why we're tackling it with small molecules now that brings with it its own scientific challenges and i don't think we will be the first to get into clinical trials I know you've interviewed um, triplet therapeutics, yeah. and they're taking that ASO approach, and they will probably get to clinical trials before we will. But what we're trying to do is what we call in the industry the best-in-class therapy. So not only does it work, but it's, it's, it's ideal from uh, a patient point of view, uh, and it's really effective, and of course it also needs to be safe. Right. So that, that's the concept behind what Locus 23 is doing. So we started about 18 months ago, um, and we were starting from an absolute standing start. So we had to assemble all the things we needed to do, do what's called high throughput screening to find some molecules, and then start working on those so that we can hopefully find the right one to take through to clinical trials. So let's let's talk about drug discovery, because a lot of people don't know what that process is and why drug discovery takes as long as it does. So can you kind of go through that process um, that you guys have to go through? Absolutely. So I used to be at Alzheimer's Research UK. I used to do a lot of talks to the public. And one of those really tricky subjects is, why does it take so long? Why is it so difficult? How do you choose what we call a target, a way of trying to affect a disease? Now, I've given before a presentation which has some videos in there and hopefully is a really accessible way of talking about how do we do drug discovery. So what I can do is I'll try and share that over the Zoom. Fingers crossed it's going to work. Um, oh, yeah, let me see if I can... Um, can you enable my screen sharing, please? Laura? Yes. So what I'm trying, I'll try and do you is just show you a few slides with a few pictures to help illustrate what I'm talking about. And I've got um, a little bit of Hollywood help uh, with some videos to hopefully make it more accessible. 
Research UK, which has it's a massive oversimplification, but essentially here there's a seven-step process. So number one on the left-hand side is what Caroline was talking about earlier: have understanding the disease that you're trying to treat, and having some insight as to exactly how you might try and tackle that disease. Then you need to find some sort of molecule or drug substance that you can use um, to affect that process, and then you have to refine that ultimately test it for safety um, in animals first and then in, in human clinical trials with HD patients. And then once you've shown it works and it's safe, then ultimately you can get it approved by the FDA and it can become available for patients. Now that's a really long process. And the bit I want to focus on is that kind of one, two, and three. How do you find the target? How do you pick it? And what, you know, how do you then go about doing it? So I'm going to use, um, well, where, how do you choose the target? It comes from lots of different sources of information. Now, you can get the kind of the lay press, which you get a lot in dementia, not so much in Huntington's, where all sorts of claims are made about chocolate, broccoli, or whatever that might be able to, um, to treat a disease. More usefully, um, you get um, articles in HD Buzz uh, or from folks like yourselves that report on things that are going on and give a lot more reasonable, sensible information. Then, of course, there are uh, scientific publications that the likes of Caroline or I would read, which have some very technical details about what's going on. But the point of this is ultimately we find that miracle cure, that wonder drug that is going to work for HD patients. So how do we pick that target? How do we decide what to do? So um, what I have got here. So um, I'm going to use some Indiana Jones references. Hopefully most people have seen the movies to help understand how we do this. So how do you pick a drug target? Well, it's a little bit like this. If you've ever seen the um, Indiana Jones and the Holy Grail uh, movie, he finally, after lots and lots of searching, finds the cavern deep underground where the Holy Grail is, that is the, the secret to eternal life, or in our case, a room effective treatment for Huntington's disease. The challenge is he gets to the room and there's an awful lot of choices. So he was going there thinking there'd just be one Holy Grail he can pick. Actually, there's a whole room for and only one of them is going to work. And that's a real challenge because there's a whole load of options and lots of scientists are saying it's this one or it's that one or the other one. And of course you have to choose and then ultimately test that in the clinical trial. Here he's taking the water and he hopes he's going to give him a test. As you see the movie, you know what happens next. Now in this case, Uh, 
world and a drug doesn't work, that isn't what happens to you. That is what happens to your hopes of a really effective treatment. So how do we choose the right holy grail? Because there are a lot of false grails out there and folks listening to this who've been in clinical trials where the drug didn't work must have had that feeling where you've tried, you know, you've tried to help science, you've, you've participated, you've given up your time, but then it hasn't worked at the end. So how do we pick ones that actually work? And also, how quickly can we tell whether it works? Because you've got these ideas at the beginning, these drug targets, and ultimately, you want to be able to dip that in the font and have that, you know, that, that uh, eternal life. But it takes years and years and hundreds of millions of pounds and dollars and large teams to do that. And unfortunately, as scientists, we only have a kind of fairly poor copy of this, like a water cooler in between, because we've got animal models, we've got cell models, but it's not as good as the real thing as being able to test it in patients. So what we've got to do is we've got lots of choices, and how can we pick the right ones? Well, what's really important for us um, is those HD patient genetic studies. And I think because it's actually starting with the patient saying what changes, what genes are involved, I think that's going to be really, really good guidance for us. But we can also look at all the evidence that's out there. We can consider the safety and efficacy because we want something that works, but it's also got to be safe. Um, we can use our drug discovery experience. So some things might work, but it's really, really difficult to make a drug to actually do it. To think about the tractability. And then finally, there is a bit of guesswork to try and pick the right things so that we can ultimately um, work on that and take that through. So what I'm hoping, if you've seen the movie, is that Locus 23 has picked this top one here. Um, and, you know, what can a day in the office feel like doing drug discovery? Well, it can be sure to have that available on our page as well um, so people can view it and I'll, um, I will share it on our Facebook page um, where uh, a lot of people view and then so <clears throat> what are you doing right now in regards to research for Huntington's so what we're doing right now is we've selected a couple of things from the DNA damage repair processes, and it's quite a complicated set of biology, but based on those genetic studies, what we've picked is something that we think is really tractable, it's really effective, and importantly, is really safe. 
because these processes are also involved in things like cancer. And obviously the last thing we want to do is treat Huntington's that cause cancer. So we've got to be able to think our way through what's the best point of intervention? What, which of all those different options is the cuff that we need to choose? And then we're at the, the preclinical research stage. So we're doing drug discovery where we've got chemists making molecules, we have biologists testing them. Caroline has put together a really strong network of different leading academics around the world who are helping us. And we're putting all those pieces together at like find that one molecule that we think is the right one that we can then take into safety testing first and then into clinical trials. So what does this mean for the HE community and how would people get involved? The best way of getting involved is when we get to clinical trials is um, volunteering and then enrolling on clinical trials. Um, and I'm sure you know, plenty of people have talked to you about this before. Now, we're not at that stage yet, but when we are, then hopefully, you know, from talking to, to um, people like yourself and getting, uh, getting our message out there to the HIV community helps us find patients who are willing to enroll in our trials to test the, the, the molecule. And the other important thing about our trials that we'll be able to do is because it's a small molecule you can take by mouth, we can go to other research sites rather than the, just the really big, sophisticated sites that could do a spinal tap on a regular basis. We can go to sites who don't need to be able to do that. What they need to be able to do is give you a bottle of pills and, you know, fill in some forms, etc. Right. So I hope that means that for the HD community, when we're running clinical trials, we can have a broader geographical spread that should make it easier for people to enroll in those trials, help us find out if it works, and ultimately, I hope, help patients um, in the long run. Well, and I think um, this is something that I talk with um, somebody else about and how COVID-19 has now changed you know, things to make it more um, virtual, and how is that going to play a role in those, you know, clinical trial visits, making it easier for people to uh, participate virtually um, in certain visits, you know, because Huntington's patients, that would make it a lot easier for them not having to leave their houses, and, um, yeah. you know, so that'll be very good to see as well, um, how how you guys navigate this new um, territory of 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 COVID-19, you know, virtual and everything. Yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, we haven't chosen our clinical trial design yet, but yeah. factors like the convenience for patients, the, you know, trying to reduce the number of clinic visits. Now, there will have to be some, just from the kind of safety and, and ethical reasons, you have to be able to go in on, you know, at least a semi-regular basis. <laughs> but I hope that we can make that much easier and help uh, you know run clinical trials that are easier for people who don't live right next to Mass General to be able to to participate in those trials. Right, exactly. That's awesome. So, there's uh, uh, so something else that we've been thinking about for the clinic, which um, again comes back to the fact that we're going after small molecules and the idea of being able to take a pill. Obviously, for a trial, we need to be able to see if it's working. So we need to have something to measure. But all of this 
thinking that we've been putting into what's the right target, how we're going to do it. Is it safe? Is it efficacious? Um, we really are prioritising things that we think that will be safe so that you, um, so that everyone would have the opportunity, if the drug does prove safe and efficacious, that they can start taking it early, way before the onset of any symptoms without um, having to go, undergo um, maybe more challenging procedures. And I guess that's the other thing about convenience. So you mentioned earlier, Lauren, for, for people who are symptomatic, you know, getting out of the house and traveling a long distance to a clinical center is really difficult. But then there's the flip side, people who are asymptomatic, they've got a job, they've got kids, they've got, you know, families, actually taking the time to go off and do that right. is quite inconvenient. So again, trying to, um, uh, you know, be able to do trials and ultimately have a therapy that doesn't interfere with your daily life um, is, is one of the things we keep in our mind. Absolutely, especially, you know, several of us, I'm gene positive, so several of us, you know, we're carriers ourselves. Um, or we have, like in my case, I, you know, I'm in my 30s, I have two kids under the age of three. <laughs> so, um, and I work a job and, you know, take care of my dad. So it's, you're right. It's a lot to be able to stop and, and participate in a clinical trial at this stage in my life. Um, so any way that makes it more convenient for me, you know, whether it's me going or my dad going either way, it is huge help. Um, and, you know, that's I'll be very interested to see how you guys set up your your trials. Right. Did you have any final thoughts for the Huntington's community? I guess one observation that I had, and I guess I touched on it a little bit at the beginning. You know, when I did my PhD, Huntington gene was relatively recently um, uh, identified, and I thought it'd be, you know, very soon that we'd have therapies. You know, 20 years later, we're still working on that. And, and sadly, that's true for a lot of brain diseases, not just Huntington's. Um, but the thing that really struck me when I went to the HDSA meeting, uh, well, the virtual meeting this year, uh, Caroline went physically last year, and also to um, the CHDI drug discovery meeting, is just how many companies are working in the Huntington space. Yeah. And there are small, tiny little biotechs like us, there's some kind of medium-sized biotechs, and then there are the big pharmaceutical giants that everybody's heard of. Um, and I think that's really exciting because what that shows to me is the science has matured, that we really think we know how to do this. But it, what it also says is that the companies are seeing that HD is a disease that really needs effective treatments, that there are patients there who are waiting for therapies, and that they really need to combine the advance in the science with the technology and the know-how that they have to get really effective treatments. So I think it's, it's great from a patient point of view that there are so many companies working in this area. You know, one of us, at least, has got to be successful and bring that first effective therapy. And then, as in most areas, I'm sure there'll be multiple drugs come out, which means there are different options for different patients, so that hopefully there's one for everybody. And I think um, you just, like, you really hit something for me. So, you know, saying 20 years ago, you're expecting it, and you're expecting it, you know, 15 years ago when I tested, oh, yeah, something's right around the corner and nothing happens. And so you start losing hope as a, as a person who's affected. And um, 
in the past five years, especially, um, we've just had amazing things happen. And all of these companies come on board and it's given me this re this new, um, trying to think of the word. I, I have more hope now than I, I ever had before because um, we actually have researchers like you who are passionate um, working towards this. We have, like you said, from from small to large, from the giants down, working on this finally. And um, for the first time, I have this true hope that everything's going to be okay. Um, you know, that something will help, whether it's a cure or whether it's a, a treatment that's going to help, you know, um, or a cocktail of treatments, but either way, something will come about. And that's the first time I've felt that way, um, in a long time. Um, you know, cause I remember when I first tested, I kept thinking to myself, oh, you know, it, it's going to happen in the next few years. They keep saying, oh, in the next five years and the and then it, nothing comes about, and it's just like, okay, well, what's the point? And then finally, in these last five years, it's just been really amazing how fast everything has moved. And so I'm very excited. Well, that's, that's fantastic to hear, Lauren. And, and you know, it, it's, it's that viewpoint that you have and so many others have that Caroline and I need to remember every day. That waiting for us right so we can't take our foot off the gas at all we need to get there as quickly as possible and you know get those clinical trials going show it works show it's safe so that it can then be approved and then go to everybody absolutely um you know those of us that are and the thing is especially um now that i'm i'm mid-30s and um you know i go several of us tested around the same time we we are part of you know, groups and we stay in contact. And so if we start worrying about symptoms or anything, you know, we're in contact with each other. But I tell you what, we are following the research every step of the way, because it's so important to us at this stage in our lives to know, you know, is it going to be there for us? And, um, and so, yeah, I mean, don't take your foot off the gas, make sure that you, <laughs> that you keep putting it out there. And um, if you ever need you know, motivation, certainly call us because there are several of us who are, who are um, just trying to make it, you know, we're living our lives, but we're also caregivers and it's always in the back of our minds that it's right around the corner for us. So yeah, that's, I mean, that's the reality. Yeah. I, I do think that, um, I think you sent it to yourself. I do really, I genuinely think that we're at an inflection point. If you look at what is happening, clinically and preclinically and just how many people are getting involved and then when you go to meetings and talk with other scientists and clinicians like I do um, I know that I'm not the only person with this dream of sorting this uh, out once and for many many other people share that dream with us and as David said you know, there's a lot of different shot and go happening at the moment we're um, aiming to be one of those shot and go but the more shots that there are the better it is for everybody so um, I think that, that combination of shot and go and then other people sharing the same dream and passion uh, something's going to come out of this so I think we're at that inflection point right now absolutely well guys thank you so much for joining me today thank you so much for coming on and 
sharing about Locust. I can't wait to hear more about what you guys do. And I'll definitely, like I said, I, I stay really up to date on what's going on. So um, we'll definitely have you on again as you um, continue through your drug discovery process. And um, I really hope that you guys have happy holidays and stay safe with COVID. And to our listeners, um, happy holidays. Um, want you to know that I am thinking of you. I know several of us are dealing with family members that are either in facilities or they are, um, you're not getting to see them for the holidays and it's tough. And um, I want you to know I'm thinking of you and um, we are here as support for you. So please take care. You guys take care there in the UK and we'll talk again soon. Thank you for having us, Lauren, and happy holidays. Thank you. Happy holidays. Thanks. Stay well. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to visit www.help4hd.org and sign up for our email newsletter to stay up to date on all that is going on at Help for HD. Get social with us and like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, and subscribe to Help for HD TV on YouTube and ring the bell for notifications.